This week on Round's Table, Project 226. Sounds sweet and sinister. What is the role of the sugar industry in sponsoring coronary heart disease research? And are trials becoming more negative over time? Maybe they need a little sugar to sweeten them up. This is the Round's Table. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for joining us on the Round's Table. Today we have an exceptionally exciting show uh, with a lot of controversy to talk about today. I am joined by a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Ashley Minook. She is the wife of a previous co-host, Dr. Fraser Pollard, and they both live in the beautiful town of Trenton, Ontario, and both work at the Trenton Memorial Hospital. Ashley has selected a particularly juicy article for us this week. It's been in the news recently, and it's somewhat controversial, so we look forward to hearing it. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Karen. I am very excited to be here. We are very excited to have you. So we're going to cover two articles today. The first article is the recent publication in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it's called Sugar Industry and Coronary Heart Disease Research, a Historical Analysis of Internal Industry Documents. <sighs> Sounds sinister. Ashley, what prompted you to choose this article? Well, this article was published at a very nice time for me because over the past few months, I've become very interested in the role of sugar in cardiovascular disease, which has also been an increasingly hot topic in the news. And the more I learn about the metabolic effects of sugar, the more I understand what we are seeing in our society today. That is the epidemic of metabolic disease, diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, obesity. And suddenly in the midst of my epiphany, I come across this article and it's sort of like this final kick in the gut to the medical community and to me and now everything seems to make sense to me. Hopefully we can sweeten the pot a little bit, pun intended. Are patients with coronary heart disease common in your medical practice? As one would imagine, yes. Heart disease, diabetes, fatty liver, this is the day-to-day -day being of most of my patients and probably most of yours and whether or not they're coming to my office because of these conditions, certainly these underlying things affect every other management I can offer them. So this is not a traditional article that we've covered so far in the rounds table in that it's not a comparative outcomes research study or a meta-analysis of any kind. Ashley, what is this article all about? Well, basically, this article calls itself a narrative case study. So essentially, the authors of the study have collected over 1,500 pages of correspondence between the Sugar Research Foundation, which was founded in the 40s and is the precursor to today's Sugar Association. So correspondence between the Sugar Research Foundation, which we'll call the SRF, and some key scientists who were playing a big role in this sugar controversy at the time. I feel like this is going to be a tale of sneaking into somebody's diary and reading all their dirty little secrets. Is that, uh, is that what we're in for today? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I can't imagine the stacks of papers that they haven't. They take out some juicy quotations and we can review some of those. But essentially, yes, yeah, someone 
poured through correspondence. And it's not just correspondence that they have, but they've also compiled a bunch of other historical reports, internal documents, statements, symposium proceedings. And what the authors have done is they've assembled things chronologically to tell a story. Okay, and so for the listeners, to give them an overview, what is the main takeaway message that Kristen Kearns, the lead author on this article, was trying to portray in this narrative case study? Basically, what we're seeing is evidence that the sugar industry funded a research project with the intent of downplaying the link between sugar and coronary heart disease. And it was done with the purpose of financial gain to significantly influence guidelines that are still in practice today. It's not an easy task to get an article published into JAMA Internal Medicine. It must have some importance beyond just exposing a controversy and potential scandal in the past. Why is an article like this important in the broader context of the research industry? So I think there are two main important issues here. One is the issue of sugar and cardiovascular disease. Our current dietary guidelines we've had over the past 30 to 40 years have neglected this potential causative factor in coronary heart disease. Heart disease, diabetes, metabolic disease are through the roof, and we're left thinking, where did we go wrong? And now we can point to a time. The second more broad issue is the effect of industry on research in general. The money isn't there for independent researchers to be conducting research. So necessarily there is industry funding much of the research that we have today. And that's important, but it's really important for us to recognize that reviews and guidelines are very, very susceptible to bias. This is a case where we really, really see the harms associated with that. So I think what you're trying to say is the accompanying commentary that came along with this article by Marian Nestle, this expose is of more than just academic interest to find out when food companies began to fund research for public relations purposes because the results of a, stu a study like this has obvious implications for public health in the broader context. Is that a fair summary of what your point is? Yeah, yeah, I think so. We're, we're essentially in a public health crisis right now, and uh, we can point to some key moments in history where this might have arisen. Because this is not a traditional comparative method study, why don't we just get into the details of the narrative cases that they talk about and peel open the cover of the diary and read the dirty secrets inside. Okay, so to give some background, this all started in the 1950s when heart disease be started to become a growing problem in American men, which led to studies of the role of dietary factors in heart disease. So by the 1960s, there were basically two divergent causal hypotheses. There's the fat hypothesis that total fat, saturated fat, and dietary cholesterol cause CHD, coronary heart disease. And then there's the sugar hypothesis that added sugars, specifically sucrose, are the leading causes of CHD. You know, by the time we get to the 1980s, very few people believe that sugar leads to CHD. So we're looking specifically now at how the industry influenced this debate. In the 1950s, 
the SRF, got wind of research linking dietary fat to heart disease. And they saw this as a strategic opportunity by getting Americans to eat less fat and therefore more sugar. And in the documents, this is clearly stated in speeches. So the SRF president said, this change would mean an increase in the per capita consumption of sugar, more than a third, with a tremendous improvement in general health. So is he not just saying he believes that sugar does not cause problems with coronary heart disease and he fundamentally believes from a nutritionism, you know, this movement of nutritionism where you were trying to reduce influence of food effects on disease to a single moiety, in this case, sugar versus fat. He's defending his own industry and saying, I believe it's fundamentally fat. And oh, by the way, if things turn out the way that we hope it will, which we believe, you know, sugar will stand to benefit economically as well. Correct. So we have no reason to believe at this point that he was doing anything maliciously. You know, he, it's great to have more market share and it's great for people to be healthier. We don't have reason to believe this was with any sort of harmful intent. I'm sure there is more to this story though. Well, in the 60s, there becomes this growing body of evidence that sugar causes elevated serum cholesterol and that sugar is more harmful than other carbohydrates. Mm. So at this point, the SRF's vice president and director of research recommends that the SRF fund CHD research and quote, then we can publish the data and refute our detractors. Wow, okay. So we're starting to see some yes. potentially ill-motivated yes. goals here. All right, take us through them. Yeah. There was a big mainstream media article came out warning that sugar increases the risk of heart attacks. And two days later, the SRF decides to undertake Project 226, this was in 1965. Project 226 is a literature review on carbohydrates and cholesterol metabolism. And they recruited some Harvard scientists to conduct the review. And over time, in total, the SRF paid the Harvard scientists $6,500, which in today's value would be $48,900 for this review article. And the documents that the authors have uncovered here clearly show back and forth correspondence between the, the SRF and the scientists throughout the research period. For example, we know that the SRF vice president reviewed the final draft of the study before it was submitted for publication. And he told one of the scientists, quote, let me assure you, this is quite what we had in mind and we look forward to its appearance in print. Project 226 culminates in the publication of a two-part literature review in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1967, entitled Dietary Fats, Carbohydrates, and Atherosclerotic Disease. The SRF's funding and participation in the review was not disclosed. There was not um, uh, laws about disclosure at that time. And the review concluded that there was, quote, no doubt that the only dietary intervention required to prevent CHD was to reduce dietary cholesterol and substitute polyunsaturated fat for saturated fat in the American diet. Now, to reach this conclusion, the review excluded most of the studies implicating sugar in heart disease. They included only RCTs and only those that use total cholesterol as a CHD biomarker. 
and it, it made sugar seem less harmful than if the entire body of evidence had been reviewed. It, it's pretty shady. Yeah, so it sounds like this Project 226 was conducted to examine and then refute systematically on a multiple level approach all of the existing studies that supported uh, or suggested a role for sugar in, the, in contributing to the development of coronary heart disease. Is that correct? Yes. Nine months into the project, for example, one of the scientists told the SRF that the review had been delayed because of new evidence linking sugar to heart disease. He said, quote, every time the Iowa group, which was the leading proponents of the sugar hypothesis, publishes a paper, we have to rework a section in the rebuttal. Right. So instead of approaching the scientific question by saying, does sugar contribute to coronary heart disease? And then reviewing the literature and coming up with a compilation of all of the findings to date and, and making a conclusion, they set out with their, not even a hypothesis, but a goal of saying, how can we refute all the existing evidence that supports a role for sugar in coronary heart disease? As new stuff came out, new damning studies, they would just continue to try to figure out ways to diminish the impact of those studies. Exactly. It's pretty interesting. I think this is an interesting article that catches, you know, a particular set of individuals uh, within the Sugar Research Foundation's employ that clearly had some ill-motivated goals in conducting research. But this is just a, a limited picture of the bigger, broader research industry that's going on around this. Is that is that not a major weakness of this particular study? Uh, that's true, and, and the study acknowledges that really this is a narrow window into the SRF activities and into you know the broader research world that was going on outside of this. But what makes this particularly important is that this review was in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, which obviously has a wide readership, and it's thought that the nutrition guidelines that then came out in 1980 were in a large part based on this review. So in that way, uh, it might be that this particular slice in time was disproportionately important to the overall debate here. Also, another limitation is that ideally we could go and interview some of these key players, but they're all dead. And so we are forced to make certain assumptions and jump to conclusions about what was going on. For example, there's no direct evidence that the sugar industry wrote any of the review or, or edited it. We just are making deductions based on the correspondence that we can see. So what's your take overall? I mean, you have a couple of individuals that are implicated in this. And as you just mentioned, that there's no proof against the sugar industry as a whole. Is this study that's published in JAMA Internal Medicine an interesting snapshot into a few bad individuals? Or do you think that the evidence is strong enough that you take it as a damning broader implication against the you know indus industry's involvement in research, or at least in this particular research in time? I'd have to say, yes, this is looking at a few sort of bad apples, as you would say. But I think we can implicate the broader community, specifically the medical community and the community of dietitians and nutritionists, because the, the real evidence here is in the New England Journal review itself. A close evaluation of that review 
which presumably was peer-reviewed, it's just so biased. And at the time, people that we know who were in medical school and were residents and were physicians and nutritionists and dietitians, they were the ones reading this review and using that information to guide their management of patients. And we're doing it till this day. You know, we are all implicated in using this sort of confirmation bias where we develop a hypothesis and all we do is go look for things that confirm what we already believe. And we've been doing it for 40 years. With nutrition, the, the industry influence is so great because the reality is that the vast majority of things that people think about nutrition, they learn from a food industry. And so what, what do you think the main takeaway messages are for our listeners and those you know who are interested in this particular article? Uh, I think the main message is that it's time for the medical community to face the fact that we have been manipulated and we've played a role in manipulating the public. It's time for us to educate ourselves based on the real evidence that's out there and sort of, you know, admit that something has gone seriously wrong here and sort of start from scratch. Right. So you're you're suggesting that we rethink the entire nutritionist approach to coronary heart disease and relook at what the true causative elements as far as dietary elements are in contributing to coronary heart disease? Uh, Yes, that's what I would say. So this is some pretty interesting stuff that you've uh, reviewed here today for us, Ashley. How is this going to change your practice with the patients that you see on a daily basis? I would say it already has changed my practice. I try to inform patients that the uh, guidelines we have out today uh, may have been influenced by industry. I really try to warn people not to believe anything they are told by a food company. And I remind patients that because of our low-fat guidelines, that the vast majority of processed foods are spiked with sugar. And I think for a lot of patients, it's very enlightening because it gives them a new perspective and it validates their experience in some cases where they've been following a low-fat diet, they've been following a low-cholesterol diet, and they're sitting in front of you and they have heart disease and they have fatty liver, and they've been told that if they eat a certain way that it will get better and it hasn't gotten better for them. So in some ways, I think it's very helpful for patients. Yeah, and I, and I think, as you already mentioned, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think you know, a, a high-quality research study and publication needs to come out of this that's unbiased to say, this is the best evidence we have about the influence of all of these different nutritional components, fat and sugar and anything else, you know, to update the public as to where we're at. Yeah. And and I think the other way this changes my practice is that I'll be a lot more careful about relying so much on guidelines and review articles because I think it's pretty clear that this type of research it's super helpful for us, but it's also probably the most vulnerable to bias. You're going to take these things with a grain of salt instead of a grain of sugar. Let's move on to the next article that I chose for the week. So this is actually not a new article, so forgive me listeners, but I came across it in the last week and I thought it was so important to our show that we should cover it. This is an article from Plus One Medicine uh, and the title is Likelihood of Null Effects of Large National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute Clinical Trials Has Increased Over Time. 
Um, it's actually from August 5th, 2015, so just about a year old, but it's really interesting. And the reason that I, that I wanted to take the time to highlight this article on the show, Ashley, is that our entire show relies on publication of exciting new groundbreaking research in you know any of the major journals that we cover and this talked about the changing patterns over time in the frequency of big positive trials that are a positive finding um, versus null effects which you know means that there are it's a negative trial it found no difference between things we've already covered a few articles in the last couple of weeks that have been null trials so I thought it to be really interesting to examine these trends over time because it's directly applicable to all of the different articles that we cover uh, and studies that we cover on the show. I think that's really, really interesting that there even is a trend in this. So it's pretty interesting that the authors uh, were able to find that. First, I want to tell you what the main message is from the article, the bottom line, so to speak. So that the number of clinical trials that are reporting negative findings or null effects has substantially increased over time following the year 2000 compared to prior to 2000. And this appears to be associated with more rigorous reporting standards for these studies, some of which are mandated by the clinical trials registry, which mandate in North America mandates that all clinical trials and human subjects for drugs uh, or supplements be registered with this. Can you tell me how exactly they conducted the study? So it's a res- retrospective review of all large studies. And what they defined large studies as those that were you know, awarded grants or had costs associated with them that were in excess of $500,000 per year. And they focused only on the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute grants because they wanted to look at cardiovascular outcomes, and that's the major cardiovascular granting agency in the United States, as a reflection of the broader trends in medicine. And they looked at these studies that were conducted between the years 1970 and 2012. And they had to be trials that were done in adult humans um, that examined the benefit of a drug or supplement, so not a device, not stem cells, not some sort of behavioral intervention, but a drug or a supplement. And they looked at cardiovascular outcomes, death, heart attack, stroke, these types of things, and then explored the effect of pre-registering these trials in clinicaltrials.gov and what effect that had on, you know, potentially some of their reporting as being null or positive trial. If a study's primary outcome crossed a confidence interval of one, that meant that there was no difference between the the comparator group and the intervention group. So that's how they defined their null trials. Okay. And so you think overall this was a a well-conducted study when you weigh the strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I mean, first of all, like this was an incredibly interesting question. You sort of studying the studies, like what a what a neat idea, right? And if you look through the tables in the in the article, it's pretty interesting. Like you see all these big name trials that we all know as as physicians and you know quote and use to help guide our treatment decisions. There's the All Hat trial, the Timmy trial, the Affirm trial. You know, hypertension, uh, MI, AFib big, big trials that we all study as medical students and doctors and read. Um, So it's relevant to a broad range of individuals that everyone knows these trials. And, you know, the question was was well constructed. It was feasible. It was able to answer the question around specifically cardiovascular trials um, rather than just trying to look at all trials published between 1970 and 2012. It was just constructed in a very eloquent way. 
Um, and then I liked the fact that it, it tried to look at some of the potential causal explanations, whether there was something to do with industry influence, uh, you know, as we just heard about in our sugar industry um, article. Uh, they looked at whether these, tr these studies were comparing like an intervention group versus placebo or versus active therapy to an intervention group. Um, and then also the effects of reporting standards. So they, they were trying to get at some of the underlying causal explanations. Now, it wasn't big enough, it wasn't powered or designed to specifically assess causal inferences. So they wanted to show some associations as potential causal explanations, but you, they couldn't make any definitive conclusions about why, you know, this effect has happened over time. And for example, so there was 14 studies that were published after 2000 that found positive results, but those 14 studies did not a priori or before they did the study declare that those positive results were one of their primary outcomes. So they were not allowed to report that in, you know, when they published it as, as the primary outcome. So in the end, you know, we, we saw a lot less who were actually positive trials. But if you included those 14 trials, then there would have been no difference between pre-2000 and post-2000 positive versus null effect rates. Well, that's very interesting. So you've outlined some of the strengths and weaknesses. What would you say is your main takeaway? So, I, I mean, I think as far as a takeaway, whether I want to trust this study or not in, the, in a balance of its strengths and weakness, I think it's a fascinating study question that was done in a very high quality and rigorous manner. So the primary finding, I think I, I believe to be true, but unfortunately it doesn't account for the underlying explanations to those findings. So, you know, it leaves me with a lot more questions, which I think sometimes a good research study should do. So Kieran, break it down for me. We're comparing post-2000 studies and pre-2000 studies. Here's the breakdown, Ashley. So they identified 55 studies that met their criteria as being large and all the things we talked about. So prior to 2000, there were 30 studies, or 57% of, of those studies, that reported positive findings as their main outcome. But after 2000, only two studies, 8%, reported positive findings. So a statistically significant difference in the rate of positive findings of studies pre and post 2000. Now, there was no difference in the industry sponsorship of these studies pre and post 2000. And just as a side note, pretty much 90 to 100% of all trials contained at least one investigator that had industry ties uh, and had to report a, a disclosure at some point for that. The other thing is that the primary outcome was clearly identified in all studies after 2000, but not so clearly identified in studies prior to 2000. By the same token, patients who were included in the study, you, you knew exactly what happened to them as far as them being excluded or lost to follow-up or crossing over to the other side or whatever happened in, sorry, in trials after the year 2000. Um, whereas before 2000, you, you weren't always sure where those patients ended up. Mm -hmm. And I, when I saw these results, I was really surprised, like as you sounded, I mean, it's a huge, huge difference. I know the first thing I thought was that maybe before 2000, it was uh, the trend only to publish positive findings, whereas maybe after 2000, it became more acceptable or uh, publications were willing to publish null results. But it sounds like the article uh, wasn't too keen on that thought. 
you can say you can say the following things about why this effect uh, happened. In other words, why there were less positive trials after 2000. You could say, well, all right, we're just not pouring money into new drug development, uh, and therefore we're not going to have a lot of you know exciting positive outcome trials because those drugs aren't there. Now that's that actually is somewhat true. There's been a steady decline in the number of new uh, drug patents and registrations through the Federal Drug Administration since 1998, but that's not the it's not a large enough explanation to say why this is occurring. And there's been some very big drugs that have come out, you know, that uh, by all accounts should have given us a positive trial and didn't for some for whatever reason. The other possibility is that. Cardiovascular disease management has come such a long way post 2000 that we're now actually really good at treating patients and reducing their overall cardiovascular, you know, risk of death and morbidity. So it's really more difficult these days to find tr new treatments that make headlining type of impacts on cardiovascular specific outcomes. And I think this is supported by a study that was published in JAMA last week that looked at NSTEMI and cardiovascular death and um, and morbidity following our change in early invasive strategies for revascularization compared to previously when we weren't so aggressive. And what this study showed was that, yes, morbidity and mortality over time has decreased, specific to cardiovascular outcomes, as a result of changing the strategies for revascularization. But overall patient comorbidity burden, in other words, all of the other diseases that they have outside of heart disease has increased. Our patients are older and sicker now than they've ever been. So specific cardiovascular interventions are not likely to have as large an impact on overall rates of death because people are dying of things other than cardiovascular causes. And we've reduced our cardiovascular rates of death specifically with the treatments we have, which makes it even more challenging to find a specific cardiovascular intervention that's going to make a big difference these days. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you think if a similar study was conducted, but instead of using cardiovascular drugs, they were using, say, rheumatologic drugs in rheumatoid arthritis, do you think this type of study would come out with different results? No, I don't actually think so. And there's two reasons why. The first is just is an extension of the point I just made. So, I mean, rheumatology and rheumatological interventions have come a long way too, most notably with biologics, right? There's now a handful of biologics that have really changed the, the way and uh, that we treat patients. Within the last 10 to 20 years, these, these biologics have really taken off. They're older than that, but as far as their uh, proven efficacy and use in a broad range of rheumatologic diseases. You know, that's the easy prototypical example of how care has improved overall in rheumatology and probably makes it more difficult to find, you know, impressive new rheumatologic outcome studies as well. That's point number one. Point number two, um, which is, you know, heavily leaned on in this article as well, which I agree, is that the reporting standards... Um, have improved. And, and I think that that largely can account for the reasons in which we're seeing less positive trials these days. Because previously, prior to 2000, you know, primary outcomes weren't, weren't clearly defined, uh, as, as was discussed in the article and found in the article. And so potentially, if you had an interesting finding that was positive, you could report that as the main finding of your study. 
might make sense. But now you have to, in clinical trials on humans, declare before you start the trial what your primary outcomes are going to be. And if you do not find a difference in those primary outcomes, but you find a really interesting dramatic effect as a, as a different outcome, your study is still deemed to be a null or negative trial because you didn't find an effect in the primary outcome. Do you think the enhanced regulation around reporting standards is a positive thing in terms of how research uh, should be conducted and disseminated? I absolutely believe it's a very important improvement that we've made in the way in which we conduct and publish trials. And there, there are two reasons that that's so. One, we've already seen evidence of, you know, ill will in research from the article around the sugar industry that you, you discussed earlier, Ashley. But also, I think that it's really important for researchers and doctors and patients to know about important negative findings. And as we discussed last week with Dr. Paxson back on the mood heart failure study, I will not use escitalopram or SSRIs in heart failure because that study was allowed to be published in a major journal to show that this is just not an effective therapy. And without the reporting standards that we have, uh, these types of things you know, wouldn't happen. And it means that we're conducting high quality research where we state our hypotheses beforehand, we test it in a rigorous way, and then the outcome is the outcome and there is no getting around it. It's absolutely important and we should continue to ensure that all studies are done and reported in this way. I have to say, Kieran, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really important point. And, you know, hooray for null trials. So you're, you're sitting at your desk with all your leather-bound books and you're looking in your archives and you're uh, looking at some studies of cardiovascular drugs, and some of them are pre-2000, some of them are post-2000. Are you thinking differently about the trials at all? Has this changed the way you're looking at certain types of research? It's an excellent question, Ashley, and I think it raises a couple of uh, pauses for second sober thought. But I think overall, the way that I approach interventions for my patients is to look at the body of evidence, um, not a single study. So, and I think a lot of these big studies are also supported by many other high quality studies to support the intervention um, at hand. For example, antihypertensive therapies in reducing stroke and cardiovascular outcomes. We've seen multiple major trials pre and post 2000 that support that this is a good thing to be doing for patients. And whether it was published pre or post, you know, they all say the same thing. So that's the way that I evaluate the evidence um, in the broader context. And, and I think it just sort of, you know, supports my, my overall approach regardless. Well, I really like what you said about individual trials not necessarily being as important as a body of evidence. And I think that's really a reigning theme here between both of our studies. We're looking at reproducibility of results. We're looking at a body of evidence within a context of multiple studies. And I think that's a very good takeaway message here. Okay, let's leave it at that. Thank you, Ashley, for talking me through it. Let's get on to my favorite part of the show. So tell us about your good stuff segment. What is making headlines in your world this week? <laughs> 
I'm not sure if this quite made headlines in my world, but I was reading about the uh, Ig Nobel Awards or the Ig Nobel Awards. Are you familiar with those? I am not. Really? No, I am ignorant to the Ig Nobel oh Awards. So tell me about it. The Ig Nobel Awards or Ig Nobel, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, is sort of a spoof of the Nobel Prize where researchers are awarded for improbable research. So this year, the, the 2016 Ig Nobel Prize winners were recently announced, and the uh, Medicine Prize was given to German researchers who actually conducted this research in 2013. And they discovered that if you have an itch on the left side of your body, you can relieve it by looking into a mirror and scratching the right side of your body, and vice versa. And this was determined to possibly have some clinical significance for if you have a rash on one side that, you know, shan't be scratched lest you make the inflammation worse, you could use the old, the old mirror trick and uh, just scratch the other side and get a little relief that way. That's a, a lighthearted end to our show. Mine, unfortunately, is not so lighthearted. So uh, a researcher named Vinay Prasad published uh, a, a, an essay in Nature uh, this past uh, couple of weeks um, about precision oncology. So precision oncology is actually quite an inspirational idea. Uh, and the idea is that it's a promise that you can pair an individual's cancer with drugs that are going to target specific mutations in their tumor so that you're, you know, you're, you're targeting your drug to produce long-lasting remission and extending their life. And in other words, genetic testing is going to link patients with the drugs that will work best for them, no matter where that tumor is in their body. Right? Very inspirational, very exciting. However, this approach has not been shown, despite its exciting promise, to really improve outcomes in controlled studies. So for example, you know, Dr. Prasad uh, goes on to say that only 6.4% of uh, patients in one you know, large study where they did gene data sequencing in cancers actually found a drug that could be targeted for their identified mutation. Um, and another big you know, large study from the US National Cancer Institute only found that 2% of patients actually were paired with a targeted therapy. Furthermore, only about 30%, so a third of the patients, of those small fraction of patients who actually have a targeted a drug uh, prescribed to them, only have any response at all, right? So you have 30% of somewhere between 2 and 6%. So overall, it's like, you know, 1 to 1.5% of patients might get a targeted drug to a targeted mutation in a cancer and have any response to it. But I, I, do, I do encourage you to read it. It's in September 8th edition of the Nature, and it's a very interesting perspective by Vinay Prasad. So check it out. We'll put the link on our on the blog, and uh, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Ashley, thank you for joining us all the way from Trenton by phone. We really appreciate it. Your article was awe-inspiring and sinister, to say the least. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope we can do this again sometime. It was great. You are welcome back anytime, please. Okay, everyone, have a good week. We'll see you next week and find out what's in store for us. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. 
Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?